They got on the phone right away and made a bunch of demands. Philippine military, of course, surrounded the place and uh, there was shooting, shooting, shooting. And these A-10s came in bombing the place. I thought we would die there. I was pretty sure we would. We were just going to die. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a weekly podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. Last week, we heard the conclusion of Jonathan Pacheco's story, how after being confined to a wheelchair his entire life, Jonathan met and married the girl of his dreams, only to be diagnosed with terminal leukemia a few years later. Jonathan would be forced to trust God every step of the way. And you can hear that story and more by visiting compelledpodcast.com. Today's episode is the finale of season two of Compelled. So make sure to stay tuned after our story today to hear about the future of the podcast. Our guest today, though, is Gracia Burnham, a missionary to the Philippines who was kidnapped alongside her husband and held hostage by Muslim terrorists for over a year. Her faith would be tested to the limits as she began questioning if God still loved her. That story coming up right after a word from today's sponsor. My wife and I sat down with Gracia earlier this summer in Derby, Kansas. Gracia shared how she grew up in a Christian household and came to find the Lord early on as a child. After she grew older, she went to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, where she met the man who would later become her husband, Martin Burnham. In 1986, Gracia and Martin moved to the Philippines as aviation missionaries. And while they did many of the same activities as regular missionaries, which included sharing the gospel with the unreached, as aviation missionaries, they also had a unique role serving other missionaries in the jungle. We work with people out in the middle of nowhere, where no roads go, um, where you have to hike for days to get in there. They would radio out and tell us what they needed, and we would buy it and box it up and fly it into them or their homeschool materials or um, doing medical evacuations for villagers who needed an emergency surgery or something. So some of the strips he flew into were like 350 feet long with, um, you know, sheer drop-offs on each side. Wow. So... It was very tricky flying because there are optical illusions. But, of course, Martin loved what he did. You know, pilots love to fly. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. he was good at what he did, too. And what was your role on the mission field? I just sat by the radio while he flew and flight followed him in case he went down or had an issue. We would know where to look for him. And I homeschooled the children there. And, of course, the pilot family was the party house. When people would come out for a break, you know, they wanted pizza and someone to visit with them late at night and play Risk till midnight and and goof around. So our house was the house where people came for just a good time. The Burnhams had been in the Philippines for almost 15 years and had settled into a great rhythm. They had three children, ages 14, 11, and 10, and they loved the work that they were doing. But they had no idea that their world would be turned upside down just days after Martin returned from a trip to the United States in May of 2001. As soon as he got back, Martin had to fly to the Philippine island of Palawan to fill in for another missionary pilot, and Gracia decided to go along. So I cleared my schedule and left our children with our co-workers, our neighbors, 
And um, I went down to Palawan to help him. I knew he would need help. He would need somebody to cook and take care of the visitors that were coming through. And uh, we told the kids, we'll be home in one week. Hmm. And while we were down there, um, Martin had jet lag, of course, from his trip across the ocean. And he knew that he needed some, some naps before he started to fly yeah. to be safe. And he called, um, we called our coworkers and said, where's a good place to go just to rest so Martin's ready to fly? And they said, oh, Dos Palmas, you'll get lots of rest there. It was sort of an island resort that people did, went out and did the touristy thing, and we'd never done anything like that down there. We always just ran down and did our work and came back, so... We booked into Dos Palmas. And, and it was your anniversary also. Right? It, it, it was our anniversary. And that's how we justified the cost yeah. to go out there. Because um, it was about $120, which was way too much for us. And we thought, oh, our, our anniversary's coming around. That's um, We'll treat ourselves for our anniversary. And um, that night, uh, well, before dawn the next morning... Uh, there was pounding on the door and bang, bang, bang. And what I thought was, oh, a guard is drunk again. But it just kept up the beating. Bang, 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 bang. Martin headed for the door. And even before he got there, these three guys with M16s broke the door in. And one of them took Martin right out. Um, one of them came over to the bed and he lowered his weapon at me and yelled, go, go, go. So we moved. Oh boy, we left everything behind. I grabbed some flip-flops on the way out the door. Yeah, what we had was the clothes on our backs. They took like 20 of us and just kind of herded us down to this waiting speedboat. And as we pulled away from the dock, they raised their weapons in the air and yelled, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar. And that's when we knew who had us. Everybody in the Philippines knows who the Abu Sayyaf are. They're uh, militant Muslims who declared jihad hmm. in that area of the world. But their jihad had sort of degenerated into a kidnapper ransom group. And we knew we were in big trouble. There were about 20 of us, mostly Filipinos who were on vacation. There were three Americans, me and Martin and Guillermo, a Peruvian-born American. Um, and um, I'm sad to say they beheaded him about a week into our captivity um, just to kind of prove that they really were serious about this whole hostage thing. So when they kidnapped y'all, their purpose was for ransom money. It was ransom money. But they told Martin and I, um, we'll deal with you last. You'll be political prisoners. We'll make demands of the government through the negotiators, and they'll make concessions, and then you can go home. So they treated us differently Everyone else was calling their loved ones and telling them how much money they needed to come up with. And even um, the, the numbers of the bank accounts to put the money into, you know, they, everybody just started in. But Martin and I, we just sat back because they said, we'll deal with you last. And I remember asking Martin, how long do you think 
this is going to last? And Martin said, oh, you know, six weeks, that should be long enough. So in my mind, I added a few weeks. Okay, 10 weeks, we're going to be in here. And oh, that's the summer. And then we'll have spent our summer in the jungle and we'll go home and go back to ministry. That's what I thought. Sadly, Martin and Gracia's optimism about their release timeline was terribly incorrect. This was only the beginning of a grueling ordeal that would stretch the limits of their physical strength, their emotional stability, and their faith. They would remain hostages for over a year. So we were just trying to be quiet and letting it sort of play out. Um, Not to say we weren't scared to death. We sure were. Uh, Within the first few hours, Martin started building friendships with them, helping the guys with the watches that they'd stolen from Dos Palmas. From you guys. Uh, yeah. Like their their booty. Um, they were staring at these watches and they didn't know how they worked. And Martin said, oh, um, I'll help you with that. And he, he said, um, oh, look, this one has two time zones. You can put it to Manila time and Mecca time, he said. <laughs> he was helping them. And the difficulty started in, you know, right there on the boat. On towards dusk, they commandeered a, a fishing vessel. Hmm. So there would be more room for us. So on the fishing vessel was, what, 10 fishermen, more Abu Sayyaf. There were probably about 10 of them that took us hostage. And there were probably maybe 10, 20 more on the boat. That was a lot of people. At one point, they covered us up with a tarp. Well, this is the tropics. The sun's just beating down on you. And the tropical sun, you know, we were just in this hot house on the bottom of the boat. And, of course, we had gone pee in the bottom of the boat. There was no bathroom. And at one point, we'd all been taken from our beds. And we told him, we need to use the bathroom. And so the only place to go was on on the floor of the boat. So um, here we were with this tarp over us, sweltering down with Ick, sitting in Ick. And um, so it it wasn't nice, but they covered us so they could come alongside this fishing vessel and buy food. Uh, How long were you on the boat? I think five days. And um, of course, it's the ocean, so you can't drink the water. So the only water to drink soon ran out because they had drinking water for 10 people, not 30, 40. So they had uh, the catch was down covered with ice. So as the ice melted, you know, that the fish were in, that was our drinking water. It was, you know, you just kind of gagged as you drank it, but you had to drink something. After the initial shock of the kidnapping had worn off, Gracia and Martin had a chance to remind themselves that God was still at hand. Well, at first, um, we we were sure that um, God knew where we were. Um, there on the boat, um, the fishing vessel was kind of like this ecumenical service, right? Because as the sun was setting, the Abu Sayyaf started their bowing down, praying towards Mecca. The Catholics started in on their rosary. 
the um you know the protestants said you know martin would you lead us in prayer and um martin's prayer was so sweet um you know god you know where we are this hasn't taken you by surprise um give us peace in our hearts give us grace to endure be with our families who are going to go through this trial, you know, just so calm and cool. And that's how he always was. And everybody realized that Martin knew how to pray and he became the, <laughs> he became the chaplain. While at sea, the Abu Sayyaf were eager to show Martin and Gracia the similarities between Islam and Christianity. The Burnhams quickly realized, though, that even though the captors had several Qurans on board, only two of them had actually read it the entire way through. Furthermore, even though many of them would read the Quran out loud, they didn't actually know what it said. They could pronounce the words in Arabic, but didn't even know what those words meant. Finally, after several days at sea, the Abu Sayyaf had arrived at their destination. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which, if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing. 
ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. One night we got close to land and we were just going up and down the shore and um, nothing. Then we went back out into the, you know, the main waters and then the next night we did the very same thing. And on the shore there was some lamps, some lights. Oh, that was the signal they Mm. were waiting for, that their companions were there on the shore. So they pulled in as close as they could and we just got off into chest high water and waded to the beach and um, started hiking in the dark. Uh, Yeah, it was dark, of course. Um, They did all that at night and we were hiking in the dark and Martin had lost his flip-flops, of course. Um, So he was hiking barefoot. I soon learned that hiking at night in flip-flops is not a good idea because you're going uphill and downhill and you're wet and you're dripping into your flip-flops and they won't stay on your feet anyway. So I ended up holding them and walking barefoot as well. I think everyone ended up walking barefoot except, of course, the Abu Sayyaf. They had boots on. And uh, that first day on land, the military found us. We had our first gun battle. And we had to learn to drop and crawl. Um, when when someone's shooting at you, um, you lay flat on the ground so you'll make the smallest target you can make. And um, the Abu Sayyaf would fire at the military, and we would get up and run, you know, or crawl, like Marines in training crawling, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when there was a volley of, un- of gunfire our direction, we would drop, crawl if we could, get in a gully. Um, So that was our first experience with a gun battle and it just freaked everybody out. We were running for our lives from the military, got away from the military and ran into a swarm of bees and the bees started attacking us. So here we were running again from another enemy. And we thought, oh, this is going to be bad. Uh, And it was. So at first, you know, when you're first going through a trial, maybe your faith is really strong. But reality set in when people started getting ransomed out because they were rich. And then the atrocities started just several days into being on land. they came up with a jeepney. A jeepney is sort of a small Filipino bus with um, seats along the edge. And um, a jeepney pulled up where on the road we were late at night and we were all tied together. (laughs) So um, getting in the jeepney, no problem. We were still all tied together. We just sat there, but there were too many of us. 
to all get on the jeepney, too many hostages, because they needed the guys with the guns. So I noticed that they left three of us um, off to the side. It was the employees of Dos Palmas. We heard later that the three guys who wouldn't fit had been beheaded. They're just in the ditch. And um, one of them, they botched the beheading, or he survived it. Um, and he's still alive today. They, um, they found him the next morning still living in the ditch. And uh, we headed off at breakneck speed on this jeepney, just lurching around. And we suddenly pulled up in, in the courtyard of a hospital was chaos in there. The the guys were um, taking the butts of their guns and just running them down the the windows, breaking every pane, glass everywhere, shouting, yelling, screaming, because the nurses were on duty. You know, imagine just having surgery in a hospital and all of a sudden into your room burst these men with M16s. Yeah. So screaming, panic. And they put us in a hallway, and uh, we were in the hospital for for about a day. Um, I think they thought, because of the Geneva Convention, we would be safe in a hospital. <laughs> so they got on the phone right away and made a bunch of demands. Uh, you know, money and this and that. And the government response was to cut the phone lines. And cut the electricity and that made them really mad I don't know what they expected so then the Philippine military of course surrounded the place and uh, there was shooting 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 and um, they began bombing the hospital where you guys were you the where hostages we were, in were. There. they started bombing it these A-10s came in bombing the place so there'd be a bang and you know here'd be this fire I thought we would die there I was pretty sure we would we were just gonna die there in the hospital and at one point they came and got Martin and they said come with us and I thought oh no <laughs> you know just dread filled my heart they said we want you to call your mission agency because they'll know how to get in touch with the embassy and they can stop this bombing to get out of there, they bribed the military. So another group of Abu Sayyaf came in dressed like soldiers, came to the checkpoint and just waved and said, you know, we're, we're soldiers, we're headed, we're headed to the fight. But um, someone's ransom had come in. So they brought in one of their wealthy guys' ransoms and someone slipped that out the front door to the military and asked them to pull back. Wow. And, you know, this wasn't the first time this had happened. This happens all the time in the Philippines. It's business as usual. So they knew the game, right? So the military took the ransom, pulled back, and we escaped out the back door. Several of the terrorists and hostages had been injured during the firefight, including Martin, who had been hit in the back with grenade shrapnel. But now that they had slipped into the jungle, things quieted down. 
This would become a pattern for the next year. The military would attack the terrorists and their hostages. A fierce battle would ensue. People would be killed or injured. And then the group would slip away into the jungle. After running deeper into the jungle, the group would remain stationary for days or even weeks until that position was found by the military again. In total, the Burnhams would face 17 gun battles. The whole time, the Abu Sayyaf would continue demanding ransoms for their hostages and occasionally would receive them. As the Burnhams waited longer and longer to be released, they realized, though, that the Abu Sayyaf members had different motivations for being there. It was hard to group lump them all into, you know, these are all terrorists. You had the leaders who were bent on jihad and running this whole show. And you had these guys who, for whatever reason, one guy uh, wanted to get married. He'd fallen in love with a girl in a neighboring Muslim village. And the dowry was 20,000 pesos, I think they said, $1,000 or so. Well, how's this young kid whose dad is a poor fisherman going to come up with $1,000. It's impossible. So he joined the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that a ransom payment would be made, and he could go get married to his sweetheart when he got his share of the ransom. Um, Several of the kids, I counted the children that were my children's age one day, and there were 13 of them. That were? Age 9 through 14. That were Abu Sayyaf. That were Abu Abu Sayyaf members. Some of them carried weapons. So uh, one of the kids, he just didn't want to go to school anymore. And so he ran off and joined the Abu Sayyaf. You know, these were kids who should be coming home to warm cookies and milk after school, right? Um, Kids. I remember after one of our first gun battles, suddenly there was kind of a new guy there. And we were sitting near him and... He said, I never wanted this. He, he said, they came through our village. They asked for three volunteers. And if you don't send three volunteers to be in our group, we'll behead some of you. He said, I was, I was the sacrifice from, from the village. He said, I never wanted to be in the Abu Sayyaf. I don't even believe in this stuff. We tried to start talking to them, figuring out, What were their ideas of God? Why were they here? You know, just kind of learning their stories. And some of them said, um, well, some of us are here because we're bad guys. You know, there are rules if you're a Muslim. The way you get to heaven is by working hard. You pray five times a day. You wear the right clothes. You eat the right foods. You give alms to the poor. You make a trip to Mecca. Uh, There's a whole book, a thick book of all the rules that you follow in hopes that at the end of time, when you get, when you face the judgment, Allah is going to take all your good things. You're praying five times a day, wearing the right clothes, all those rules you followed. He's going to weigh that against your sin. If your good outweighs your bad, you go to paradise. If your bad outweighs your good, you go to hell. You know, Scripture says if there's one thing on your bad side, you can't enter heaven. God's holy. He cannot, he will not look on sin. And that was the point when Jesus died, he took our sin on himself. But he didn't just take all our sin, he traded us his righteousness for it. 
and now we're totally forgiven because of what Jesus did, and that's something a Muslim can never know. Forgiveness, there's not any. And so imagine you're this 18-year-old kid, who Muslim kid, who has slept around, which is forbidden. You've smoked cigarettes, which is forbidden. You've drunk alcohol. You've not gotten up at dawn every morning to pray. You've been lazy and stayed in bed. And you know, you suddenly know that at the end of time, your good is not going to outweigh your bad, and your only recourse is to die in jihad, because if you die in jihad, you bypass that iffy judgment. You go straight to paradise. And a lot of them said, we're here because we're bad guys. We need to die in jihad. Martin asked one kid that we really liked one day, um, Martin said, um, what, what would make you happy? And he said, uh, if I could die in jihad, I would be happy. Mm. And Martin didn't know what to say. And some of them, I think, realized we were all in this mess together. We were on opposite ends of the battle, weren't sure why, and we were all scared, and we all wanted to go home, except for the leaders. Uh, They knew how things worked, and they were bent on jihad. At first, they told us, you know, would we ever steal from you? Of course not. We're... The Koran forbids that. And we all relaxed. Oh, these are honorable men. Would we ever touch your women? Of course not. The Koran forbids it. So we thought, oh, all the women are safe. These are honorable men. But what we saw happen was you can't keep the law. You know, even if you make up the law yourself, um, you can't keep the law. And the longer we went... Of course they stole from us. Of course they touched the women. All of a sudden, the men were um, had these women in their power, and they decided to make them their booty of war because the Koran says you can do that. So all of a sudden, of course, this this the head guy decided he wanted this girl, and then one of his under leaders decided he wanted this girl and then soon it was just you know whoever you wanted that she became your booty of war were you in danger of that uh i thought i was in danger of that and we really prayed against that and um they liked martin so they didn't touch me Hmm. um and i was married the the married girls though that whose husbands weren't there, became booty of war as well. Uh, They called it sabayaing. Yeah, the girls just had to live with them, sleep in their hammocks. And uh, one of the leaders of the group, Abu Sabaya, could quote John 3.16. He said, uh, there was a day, he said, "I I went to this youth group because I just fell in love with this girl in my high school class. And so I started going to church with her, and there was this day I, I heard what Christians believe, and, and I was ready to accept it, and they started having um, communion. And I knew that if I went forward, it would change my life forever, 
And he said, instead of going forward for communion, I made a decision and I ran from there. And I bought into the Muslim faith as my own. Sabaya made a decision. God was working in his heart, and he squelched that. Hmm. The Abu Sayyaf were a mixed bag. While the Burnhams were in captivity, 9-11 happened, and all of their captors began celebrating that the Twin Towers had fallen and thousands of Americans had died. Several of them began bragging that they had actually trained in Afghanistan alongside Al-Qaeda members. But at other moments, some of them would act like the children that they still were, asking the Burnhams to teach them English, and some even expressed desires to marry the Burnhams' daughter, who wasn't even 13 yet, after seeing her photograph. Gracia referred to them during our interview as the Lost Boys from Peter Pan. And the truth is, they were lost. Without Christ, there was no true hope that the Abu Sayyaf could cling to. But Gracia soon discovered that her own faith would be stretched to the limits as she began questioning who she was clinging to. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. You're talking to a friend, and they're going through a really tough time, and you want to share a particular Bible verse with them right there in the moment. But as hard as you try, you can't recall the specific words to the verse. You know the gist, but you can't exactly remember how it goes or where to look it up in the Bible. Does that sound familiar? I know for me, that's happened so many times, which is why scripture memory is so important. And there's a great phone app for that called Verse Locker. It's totally free, no ads, no subscriptions, nothing. You just choose the Bible verses that you want to memorize, and then you do it at your own pace. The app has helpful audio and visual memory tools like blur mode, which gradually blurs out different parts of the verse, or initial mode, which shows you the first letter of each word in the passage. Or you could listen to a narrator read the verse out loud on repeat. It's up to your specific learning style. So the next time you're trying to remember what that verse was, you'll already have it hidden in your heart. Let Verse Locker help you for free. Just search the App Store or Google Play for Verse Locker. Again, that's one word, Verse Locker. 
When I realized this wasn't going to be done in six weeks, the real me surfaced. I started hating those guys. I started being filled with envy at them when they had food and they didn't share it with us. I, You know, all these horrible things just raised to the surface. It was shocking. And every time something would go wrong, they would tell us, you know, Friday, you're going to be released. And we would believe it. And Friday would come and go, and we wouldn't get released. And, you know, here was this roller coaster. Ah, Friday. And they'd say, next Friday, it's going to happen. And I would get all geared up for next Friday, and it wouldn't happen. And week 10 came and went, and no no rescue, no negotiation was working. And I started thinking, um, you know what? Um, God doesn't love me. Um, why does Scripture say, if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it? Why is that even in the Bible? Because I was asking and he wasn't doing it. And it questioning God's love and God's word just kind of threw me into this pit of depression and anxiety and questioning and it really got bad and one day I went to the river to just sulk and Martin came and sat by me and he said Grace I'm just so sorry to see you giving up your faith like this I said oh I'm not I'm not giving up my faith I still believe God made us. I believe He's almighty. I believe He purchased salvation for us. I just think God doesn't love me, because if He did, I wouldn't be in this mess. And Martin said, Oh, Gracia, I think either you believe it all, or you don't believe it at all. He said, You've got to decide what you believe. Is God's Word true? Is He good? And um, so we started going over all the verses about love, because that's what I was dealing with, right? I have loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness I've drawn you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Um, Started just quoting verses about God's love, and I thought, you know what? Maybe it's not working for me. Like, we, we all have this wonderful plan for our life, right? <laughs> and we think God's supposed to come through and make it happen. And I thought, you know what? I need to just believe that God's Word is true. He says He loves me. Doesn't seem like it. I don't feel loved. I don't feel blessed. I don't feel like I'm in the heavenlies with Him. But Scripture says I am. Either it's true or it's not true, and I'm going to choose to believe it's true. And it's like in that moment, God put it in my heart to start asking for things. Ask for forgiveness in your heart, since you can't do it yourself. Ask for love for them. You know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, those aren't things you make happen in your heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. And I started asking for him. And uh, he did the work. I think God changed me in the jungle. Because you can love your enemy for a minute, or a while, a day even maybe. And then you go through a village and they chop some guy's head off. Uh, 
what, forgive them? No, they're dirty rats. And they do it again, right? Your enemy does again to you what they did before. And all those feelings resurface. So you can forgive for a while in your own strength, but it doesn't last. But when God changes a heart, He changes a heart. And I love that about Him. Old things are passed away. All things are made new. Only God can do that. As hard as it was, Gracia began praying for her captors, that they would come to know the Lord. It was a dark time for Gracia. The captivity was terrible and was taking a toll on her body physically. Something had to change. We ended up at the year mark, and who would have ever thought that this nightmare would continue for over a year? And we were just very, very low. We were this ragtag, exhausted team of people because most everybody had gone AWOL. You know, they got out of there. At, at one point, there were 80 Abu Sayyaf, 20 hostages. That's a lot of people to feed. And we were starving, and they got sick of it and disillusioned, and everybody, one by one, would just take their weapons and go home. We would wake up, and there'd be 10 guys just gone. So we dwindled to 14 Abu Sayyaf, three hostages, and we were starving. We hadn't eaten in 10 days. I didn't know you could go that long without food. Yeah, always thirsty and and drinking dirty river water and um, whatever you could come up with, we drank. Yeah. One day, uh, we were desperate, in desperate need of water, and we came across this little pool of water that had gathered in, a, you know, a rock was shaped kind of funny. There was an yeah. indented place, and so this stagnant water was there and as I dipped my cup of water there were leech eggs in it. After months of terrible living conditions, the constant threat of gun battles and the emotional roller coaster of frequently being told that they would be released only to have those hopes dashed apart, the Burnhams finally heard great news. Right about Easter time, uh, someone paid a ransom for us. And you can imagine the excitement when some of the money came into camp because this was it. <laughs> it's what we'd all been waiting for and we could all go home and everybody was talking and packing up and the Abu Sayyaf leaders had a big meeting and they called me and Martin over and we sat on the ground with them and they said, uh, someone's paid a ransom for you, but we've decided it's not enough and we're going to ask for more. You know, bad guys are bad guys, and they don't follow the rules. And by that time, the the group had split. Uh, some of the guys had gone back into the city because they were sick of this whole thing. Then there was this small group of us still out in the jungle. Well, the FBI had delivered the ransom money. The CIA knew where we were, but those two entities don't like each other and they didn't they didn't talk to each other so they delivered the ransom to the guys who didn't have us out oh in town goodness. and they just sent a little penance you know a little bit to the guys who had us and that, that made them really mad so they were going to ask for another ransom that would come straight to them and so even the ransom what we'd been begging god for even the ransom didn't work and we were so discouraged, and 
laid down that night on some rice sacks. Martin kind of nudged me just as I was drifting off to sleep, and he said, um, I'm so glad, Gracia, that when Jesus paid a ransom for us, it was enough. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Jesus' payment for us on the cross was sufficient. It satisfied God. There's nothing charged against us anymore. Jesus paid it all, and it's enough. And Martin just did that over and over. I would be at in the depths, right? And he would point me again to the Lord. You know, he just did it over and over. I, I didn't know what sort of man I was married to. I, I knew he was a neat Christian, but never understood his Christ-likeness till we were just in this awful situation. And he did that so often, mm. pointing me to the Lord. Finally, on June 7th, 2002, the Burnhams encountered their 17th and final gun battle. We'd heard that another ransom had been paid for us and was waiting at this elusive village that we couldn't find. We were just wandering around lost. We couldn't find the village. Well, what we didn't know was there was no second ransom and there was no village. Mm. That's why we couldn't find it. But they had said that to give us value, to keep us alive. And um, so this day, um, we heard the military behind us. We'd, we'd been resting and um, had crossed a road the day before after it had rained heavily. You know, the tropics dumps rain. And we'd crossed this road, and the next day the, the military had seen our footprints and started following us, and we realized we were being followed and kept going, and I was so discouraged and I told Martin, um, I, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I said that all the time. And he said, um, oh, Gracia, I think we're going to get out of here. I just don't know when. Let's just keep going and see what God does. And then it clouded up to rain. And there were cer certain unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military. Um, they never fought at night, so you could move at night. And they never fought in the rain. Everybody just hunkered down in the rain and waited for it to pass. So there was never pursuit in the rain. So it was clouding up to rain and we thought we were safe. So we set up our hammocks and our plastic sheeting that would shed the water. And we laid down for our rest. And minutes later, the military, they didn't stop for the rain. They came over the hill and they opened fire on us. I was hit in the leg, so I dropped from the hammock, you know, because that's what I'd been taught to do, right? Make a flat surface, and but it was so slick and steep, we were on the edge of a mountain, and I slid down the hill and came to rest beside Martin, and I looked at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. And I knew from experience, you know, leg wounds might heal, chest wounds don't. And he lay there, um, just breathing really heavily. And um, then his body got heavy. Have you heard that term, the weight of death? Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was feeling, but I didn't really know. I just felt him get heavy. But I wasn't sure he was dead. And then I don't know how long that 
gun battle lasted 10, 15 minutes. And then the Abu Sayyaf retreated down the river and the military came down the hill to rescue us. And um, I started moving my hands around so they would know I was alive. I didn't want them to shoot me. And um, they started dragging me up the hill. And as they dragged me away from Martin, I looked back and he was white. And that's when I knew he was dead. They got me to the top of the hill and um, called a helicopter. And we left Martin laying in the rain. I thought, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to be. For Gracia, Martin's death was crushing. Throughout all their months in captivity, he had been the one who had repeatedly pointed her back to God and his love. On the days when she wanted to give up, Martin had kept her strong. And now, the day that she was finally rescued, Martin, her husband and best friend, had been killed by their rescuers. A lot has happened since that day. Gracia is now back in the United States. Her children are all now grown up, and some are married and have their own children. And all of her kidnappers have either now been killed or captured. But to this day, Gracia still thinks about the last conversation she had with Martin in their hammock just minutes before they were shot. Martin said to me, Gracia, I've been thinking about Psalm 100 all day long, especially that first verse that talks about serving the Lord with gladness. He said, this does not seem like serving the Lord. We've been walking through this jungle for over a year, but let's by faith accept that that's what we're doing here, that we're serving the Lord here, and let's do it with gladness. And that's just kind of become my my life's theme. I'm just going to do what God calls me to do, uh, figure that out, <laughs> do it with my whole heart, do it with gladness. So thankful for that charge at the end. Yeah. Mm. I was a different person. My kids will tell you, a different person went into the jungle than came out. They'll say, um, our mom was always on to us. She wanted us to be perfect. And if we weren't perfect, she would yell at us, you know, I wanted the perfect family, and we were the homeschool family, and um, wanted everything to be perfect at our house, and I was so black and white and so rigid and so mean to my children, let's be honest. Hmm. And um, I came out, and I wasn't mean anymore, because I had seen myself. I saw myself for what I was. I saw my sin. And I realized God's grace. And I didn't care anymore if the kids went to school with a messy bedroom. I wanted them to go to school with a clean heart. I wanted them to know that their mom loved them. The bedroom has nothing to do with whether your heart's clean or not. And I'm so thankful that, um, that for one thing, I came out changed. You know, God did it. Wouldn't it be sad to go through this horrific trial and come out on the other end just the same way you went in, or worse, bitter, angry, um, blaming? Wouldn't that be sad not to have learned some life lessons? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So hopefully I've learned some life lessons.
Gracia is still involved in full-time ministry. She keeps a busy speaking schedule and shares her story with churches, mission groups, and others. She's written two books, the first of which is called In the Presence of My Enemies, which is about her and Martin's year of captivity in the jungle and became a New York Times bestseller. Her second book is called To Fly Again, and is a reflection of the many lessons she learned in the jungle and since returning home. And we're giving away an autographed copy of both of those books at the end of this episode. Gracia has also created a foundation that has funded the work of many mission projects, including a Filipino comic book about the Bible, which has borne some unexpected fruit. We printed a comic book series in the Taosug language. Taosug was what many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke. Well, some of the first people to get a hold of it was a couple that does prison ministry in Manila. And they took those comic books into the prison and gave them away, and the guys loved them. But they said, what's happening here is these guys found out Gracia Burnham. Some of them are coming to us saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held Martin and Gracia captive. I said, well, ask them their names. Here came the names. Guys, we knew. We'd walked with them, starved with them, lived with them. We know them. And... um So I thought, this is from God. And we started getting together and figuring out ways to bless those guys, projects we could do in the prison, and ways to share the gospel in there. And uh, so far, four former Abu Sayyaf have come to know Jesus in the prison. I've been able to even find some of these guys' children and send them to school and a pastor in a very rural area area of the Philippines knew that someone was going to come and hear me speak, a Filipino couple, and they said, tell Gracia about this new family we have in our church. He was one of the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf. His whole family has come to the Lord. They've changed their name, moved to a new area, and they're trying to grow in their walk with God. Wow. It's a good story of... God yeah. just, God doing a work, you know, it's all Him, because that's the point of this story, right? Mm-hmm. God's glory is the point of this story. People love stories of in, endurance and overcoming, but the point is, God's great, and God has a plan, and God can do anything, and He makes us strong as we follow His plan. And trust in Him. That's the point. And He gets the glory at the end. God wasn't reacting to things that went awry in our story. Um, God orchestrates things. And I used to say we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And my sweet friend, Marsha, <laughs> reminded me, Gracia, you weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time. You were in the right place at the right time. And, you know, that's just kind of mind-blowing, right? Just blows your mind that God had that planned for us. And His plans are good to give you a future and a hope and to prosper you. And His plan is to establish you and make you strong and make you a voice for Him. All over the world, he's doing that. Yeah, well, thank you. You're welcome. 
Gracious story was humbling to say the least. You know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be taken away from my loved ones and then forced to live with my enemies for over a year, only to lose my spouse at the last moment. Gracia makes such a good point, though, when she says that God orchestrates things and that there is no such thing as the wrong place or the wrong time. God is always at work, even in our darkest hours. To learn more about Gracia, visit our website, graciaburnham.org. Or you can visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, where we'll include links to Gracia's website, her books, and more. We'll also be giving away an autographed copy of each of her two books. Just visit our website, compelledpodcast.com, pull up this episode, and you'll see the entry form at the bottom of the page. Like I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, this is the season finale of our second podcast season. So I just want to thank everyone who has sent us messages or left reviews. It's really been encouraging to see how God has used this podcast to touch other people's lives. One of my favorite memories was hearing from one of our listeners, Abigail from Pennsylvania, who said, I enjoy hearing how the Lord is working in the lives of ordinary people, how he transforms them and uses them in his kingdom. I've been blessed, encouraged, and inspired by the podcast. And you know, I've heard a lot of stories just like that from our listeners. And a lot of people have asked us when we'll be releasing our third season. And that's something that we're still praying about and talking with others about. We'll be taking a break between seasons, and we'll update you when we have a better idea of when we'll be launching season three. We've already recorded a lot of interviews for our third season and have spoken with several more potential guests, but again, that's something that we're still seeking God's direction in. But we love hearing from our listeners. So if you've been encouraged or have ideas about a potential guest, then send us a message on social media or through our website. In the meantime, if you want to hear more content from us, you're always welcome to listen to our behind-the-scenes content, which are the full-length interviews with our guests. You can gain access to those when you become a Compelled Monthly member at any level. Learn more at compelledpodcast.com and click the button at the top that says Become a Member. If you want to stay up to date or be the first to know when we come back, make sure to join our email list on our website at compelledpodcast.com. This episode was edited by Zach Fowler. Find him online at zachfowlerimagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost. View his work at sciadesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Billups. Follow Ben on Instagram at ben.billups. Our media assistant is Frank Allegrea. Find him on Twitter at thefrankallegrea. Our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Facchino, and our assistant producer is none other than my wonderful wife, Sarah Hastings. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compel. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.